Father, here we are in your presence, longing for a word from you. You've promised that your word always accomplishes what you send it for. Give us receptive hearts and minds. Help us to listen to your voice this morning. May you speak to us in powerful ways. May it change our lives. Father, fill this place with your Holy Spirit. We need you. We need a closer walk with you. The times we're living in are perilous. There are so many things going on that lead us to our recognition of our need of a Savior. Lord, I pray that at the end of this message, as we look at your word, that we would see our need for Jesus more than we've ever seen it before. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a lot of crazy things going on in our nation right now, isn't there? I mean, currently there is a large hurricane buffeting Texas that's causing mayhem and distress. I'm so glad that this happens right when we're looking at the book of Job because now we understand what's behind these things, right? Because Job and his friends had this philosophy that if you did bad, then God would send curses on you here and now in this life. And sometimes there's this theory that that was an act of God or those people were especially evil. And that's why that hurricane went to that place. And don't get me wrong, the book of Revelation does describe that God allows things to take place, that judgments will take place. But all the ways those judgments are for the purpose of giving people an opportunity to come to Jesus. But as these things happen, we recognize that there's a force behind them, a force that is seeking to destroy us. Just a couple of weeks back, something happened in Charlottesville that there were a myriad of voices talking about. You might have heard people from one end of the spectrum to another end of the spectrum saying all different kinds of things. But in a moment like that, you look for a voice who can give you some sort of clarity, something that is important. I heard a lot of different people saying a lot of different things. But one person grabbed my attention specifically. This person grabbed my attention because of what he had gone through. You know how it is when somebody has gone through suffering, when they've gone through pain, when they have actually experienced something, their voice has a little bit more validity. Somebody else could easily tell you what Mark has to say, but if they haven't been through what Mark has been through, it has a whole lot less validity. We have a lot of pundits, a lot of people commentating on what's going on in the world today. But I want to put a picture up here of Heather Hayer. Heather Hayer, as you know, was one of the tragedies that happened in Charlottesville. She was mown down by an angry motorist. She was in a peaceful protest. But her dad had something to say. This is a dad who is dealing with the loss of his 32-year-old daughter, a paralegal uh, assistant who would help people who were going through uh, bankruptcy. He had this to say, and they need to forgive each other. I include myself in that. In forgiving the guy that did this, I include myself in that in forgiving the guy that did this. We just need to forgive each other. He went on to say, I I just picture Jesus there on the cross and as he looked at those who were persecuting him, as he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He said this about the angry white supremacists who mowed down his daughter who was protesting on behalf of those that she believed were being oppressed. He has a little bit more validity when he says something like that, right? When he talks about forgiveness from a heart that has just been racked, that has been torn apart by the loss 
of someone dear to him. We find in the book of Job that God is seeking to grab our attention, that he's seeking to point us to the power of forgiveness, to the power of what forgiveness can do in our world today. Go with me to Job chapter 38. You remember that we've been, as we've journeyed through the book of Job, we've looked at, first of all, how Job was a righteous man. And how did that righteousness manifest itself? He was merciful and compassionate. He was close to those who had no father, those who were widowed, those who were poor, those who didn't have anybody to stand up for them in court. Job was the one who stood up for them. Then we saw how Job, as he began to suffer, the enemy came and he exposed that Maybe it was Job was following God for selfishness, that it was about what he could get from God, that he only served God because of the the blessings in his life or the fear of punishment. We saw that that's what Satan is trying to challenge in Job's life and what he will try to challenge in our life in Revelation chapter 13. Is it we just serve God for the stuff? Do we just serve God because he gives us life? Or do we serve God because of his matchless charms, because we love Jesus? And last time that we talked about Job, we looked at how God responds. And at first, God's response as he goes through creation, it looks like God's just saying, hey, I'm really powerful and you're not. So you need to listen to me. But as we looked a little bit closer, we saw a compassionate God who says, were you there when I founded the earth at the the foundation of the earth? Were you there when I laid the cornerstone? And we saw that the cornerstone is Jesus. And he says, are you the one that waters the the grass in the barren tundras? Are you the one that, that cares for the little sparrow? And we stopped at the end of chapter 38. Look at verse th- chapter 39. We're just going to look at the first four verses in chapter 39. Another tender picture of the loving care of God on this planet. Do you know, verse 1 says, the time when the wild mountain goats bear? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear? They bow down. They bring forth their young. They deliver their offspring. Their young ones are healthy. They grow strong with grain. They depart and do not return to them. Are you there when that pregnant doe is ready to give birth? Job, do you care about what's happening in the animal kingdom when that most tender moment of birth takes place? Job, do you know that I am the one there? helping that deer? Do you know that I care about all of the animal kingdom, that I care of the details of what's happening on this planet, that I suffer when a little fawn dies, that I bear that suffering and that grief because I know and love even that little fawn that you don't even know exists? He's revealing his love and his tender care for this planet But go down to Job chapter 40 and verse 1. This is the first response of Job to God revealing his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his care over all of creation. This is how Job responds. In verse 1 it says, Moreover the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Job, answer me. If if you're going to rebuke me, go ahead and tell me where I'm wrong in this. Verse 3, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. 
Job recognizes in God a tender love and care for all of creation that he has been treading on. He's been ignoring. He's been trampling on God's mercy and grace. Because of his own suffering, he's totally ignored the loving watch care of the God whose heart breaks for the sparrow who falls. How much more does he care and sympathize with all that Job is going through? Then God goes on to say this, verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job, and he's about to take it to another level with Job. He answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? This is something that our conscience tends to do. We tend to to make God into the picture that we want Him to be so that we feel justified, so that we feel right about who we are. This is the illness of pride in our lives that it leads us to a false picture of God's character. He says, do you misconstrue who I am so that you can be justified? Job, I'm going to set things in order for you. So he goes on, verse 9, Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like His? Verse 10, Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. So first of all, God's saying, Array yourself with splendor, majesty. If if you want to be God, Job, if you want to go ahead and, and take on my role for a day, consider this, Job. This is what I need you to do. First of all, I want you to appear before the universe as one who is clothed with majesty and splendor and glory and beauty. Okay, so first of all, that's who you need to be. That's who Moses saw when he was hit in the cleft of the rock. He saw God's glory, that he was the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abounding in compassion. He was the the God who revealed his loving kindness to Moses. So, So first of all, You need to to keep that as the basis and foundation of who you are as an all-powerful God. And then go ahead and do this while you are, are, are that type of God. Verse 11, disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone... Uh, tread down the wicked in their place, hide them in the dust together, bind their faces in hidden darkness, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Job, if, if you can do all of this, if you can take care of that wicked person, that proud person, if you can humble them in the dust and you can take care of all of the, the, the mess that's going on in Charlottesville, if you could take care of all of that, And at the same time, be a loving and gracious and compassionate and merciful God, then then you have room to talk, Job. Let's talk when when you can do that. Then then you're really able to save yourself. And then he goes on to present this picture. Now, we're going to skip over the first picture, and we're going to go to the second one for time. Chapter 41. Just look at what God is trying to do here. Suddenly, God moves to this picture of a creature who is terrifying to Job and should be terrifying to us. Verse 1, Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Leviathan. This is one of the six times that that word occurs in Scripture. We're going to unpack what this Leviathan looks like. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? 
Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet for him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Now there's different theories about what Leviathan is. Some people say, well, it's, it's basically a crocodile, but just he's kind of going into poetic language about what a crocodile looks like. Others have said maybe this was some sort of sea monster. Others have said this is a playing off of Eastern near, uh, near ancient uh, culture, which had the idea of there was a creature called Lotan who would uh, basically was this creature who was battling with Baal. They had all of these different... Uh, creatures like this. Maybe that's what it's talking about. We're going to look from the Bible and see what perspective we can gain. But he's basically saying, can you take this creature on? Verse 8, he answers, lay your hand on him, remember the battle, never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? Job, you can't take him on. You couldn't even fight with this creature. He's so intense. Unless you forget how intense he is, it goes on to say, no one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. Verse 12, I will not conceal his limbs. He's talking about Leviathan again. His mighty power or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who could approach him with a double bridle? Now, picture as he goes through these descriptions of what this creature is like. Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. He has this thick armor that it's not even possible for you to penetrate, Job. But not only that, look at verse 18. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck, and sorrow dances before him. Does this sound like a scary, fierce, and dreadful creature or what? I mean, this sounds like something from our nightmares. Verse 23 continues, The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. Not only this, but look at verse 24. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. He doesn't have any compassion in him. He's not going to spare you. He doesn't care about you at all, Job. His heart is hard like a millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are like sharp potsherds. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. 
On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of what? Pride. Here is this fearsome creature that the mightiest warrior can't possibly hope to get his spear through his armor. Here's this creature that fire comes out of his mouth and kindles a fire. This sounds like, what, a modern-day dragon that we might see in some sort of popular fiction. He's king over all the children of pride. It's interesting, when you think about the children of pride, you think about those who have especially had pride against God, one in particular stands out. And that is Pharaoh. Do you remember Pharaoh when Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh answered him and said, who is Yahweh that I should serve him? I don't even know this God. And plague after plague came, and yet Pharaoh refused to humble his heart. Look at Psalm chapter 74. We're going to come back to Job. But in Psalm chapter 74, this picture of the Israelites going through the Red Sea, which was that moment when Egypt was fully conquered and unable to threaten them any longer. In Psalm chapter 74, and we'll go to verse 13, we pick up this story and it uses this imagery of Leviathan to compare it to the Egyptians. Verse 12 says, For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Verse 13, you divided the sea by your strength. This is talking about that moment at the Red Sea when God provided a way of salvation where there seemed like there was no opportunity. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. So this is this picture of a multi-headed monster in the water. Then verse 14, you broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So is this talking about a literal monster that was there and when the, the Red Sea was split apart that God took this Leviathan and fed him to the Israelites in the wilderness? They weren't even allowed to eat snakes. This is talking about a power that was behind Egypt. A power that was inspiring the pride that was in the heart of King Pharaoh to resist them to the point where he ordered his army into this miraculous dividing of the sea, which turned into a trap for he and his armies. Go back to Isaiah, a few books over, Isaiah chapter 27, another place where it talks about Leviathan. Isaiah chapter 27, we'll read verse 1. It's talking about At the end of chapter 26, the day of indignation and the punishment of God, it's talking about the the last days, and it says this in verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing, what does it say? Serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, if you have the King James Version, you'll notice there that it uses the word dragon. Any of you have that? You notice it says dragon or serpent? Yeah. So it says here that Leviathan, and compares him to this serpent, this dragon. And then go with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. This picture of this battle with a dragon between Christ and the dragon. 
the pictures all the way down to the times that we are living in. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Here's a creature that appears, this serpent-like creature, this dragon-like creature with many heads, similar to what we just saw in Psalm chapter 74. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rule of rod of iron, and her child was caught up to the throne of God. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Then it goes back in Revelation chapter 12 and it recaps that battle in heaven. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now does this literally mean that heaven was suddenly so full that the dragon could no longer find a place to live in heaven, that there was no vacancy in heaven anymore? This is talking about that the dragon no longer had the sympathies of the heavenly universe, that the dragon was no longer able to deceive people, that, that the dragon no longer had the sympathies of heaven. And it goes on to tell us how this happened in the biggest way. So the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth and the angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Something key to look at and you can write it down in your notes. John chapter 12 and verse 31 and 32 Jesus says, now is the ruler of this world cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When was Satan dethroned from his ability to deceive, his ability to be in the hearts of the heavenly universe, his ability to have any little inkling that maybe he was right in his arguments against God? It took place at the cross. When the God of the universe came down, it, we begin to see it in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus is going into the Garden of Gethsemane. As he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, he begins to say, my heart is sorrowful. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. But then in his prayer, although he's facing this death that we don't understand it at first, as he prays about that cup, which is the sin, the suffering, the grief, the iniquity of all of humanity is being poured into his heart. As that is being poured into him, he says, if there's any other way to save them, you know, he says, if this cup can pass from me, then let it be so, but not my will, but your will be done. God, if there's any possible way to save humanity, I love them so much, and I love you so much, if there's any other way besides what we're about to do, then can we do that? But then he adds, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus proceeded to lay down his life for you and me. 
That means that the God of the universe demonstrated to us that you are more valuable to him than his own existence. That he would rather that you live, that you experience happiness, that you experience joy. He revealed unselfishness like the universe had never seen before. And Satan's argument that unselfishness didn't exist was dethroned on the spot. As the God of the universe demonstrated, I love you more than my own existence. That was the the moment, the defining moment in all of history that enabled the victory over the dragon. And it's as we look to that moment, that defining moment, that everything changes in our lives. Go back to Job chapter 41. We've read all the way through and we see that Leviathan is this creature, this creature that the God's saying to Job, there's no way that you can handle him. He's can you possibly humble the proud? Can you possibly take the wicked and, and put them in the dust and at the same time be a God of glory and majesty? Can you do these things, Job? Just look at Leviathan, this evil creature. And he describes this dragon-like creature that I believe is a representation of Satan. And I believe that as we come to realize the heinousness of sin. We come to realize how dreadful of an enemy Satan is, how deceptive he is. He clothes himself like an angel of light, but this is who he is at his core. We see it with Job as he comes and one thing after another, he wipes out his possessions, he wipes out his kids, he scourges him, he hates Job, and he hates you. This creature should lead us to respond like Job does in verse 42. Then, uh, chapter 42 and verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. Okay, so I recognize your omnipotence, all of this stuff. Only you can do this whole picture that you presented to me of caring for the tiny sparrow, of caring for the blades of grass, and of also taking out the wicked and the proud and, and that evil creature Leviathan. I realize that you can do everything. That no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. God, I didn't realize what you were dealing with. I didn't realize the suffering you were going through. I didn't realize the intensity of the great controversy that you have to face, God. God, I I didn't understand how big this battle was as I was arguing with my friends about whether or not I'd done evil and was being punished for that. I didn't understand. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I'd, I'd heard about you, God. I'd, I'd heard all these traditions. I'd heard that it, that it was we were to serve you out of fear of punishment and hope of reward. I had thought that you always punished the, right, the, the wicked and always rewarded the righteous. I thought that this was the way things worked here and now. But now I actually see you for who you are with your loving character, that you send the rain on the evil and the good like Jesus came and told us in Matthew chapter 5. That you are merciful and gracious, abounding in compassion and love. I now see you for who you are. And I also recognize that you are the only one that can save me. That's what he goes on to say in verse 6. He says this, 
Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, I'm nothing. God, I realize now that I can't save myself. I don't have what it takes, and I have to trust your loving character. I have to believe that though I'm going through this suffering, though you've allowed all of this to happen, though you've allowed Leviathan to do all of this to me, I have to trust that you know what you're doing. I am nothing. Job repents in dust and ashes. I love what it says in the book, The Faith I Live By, page 111. It says, what is justification by faith. You've heard of that term. It was the foundation of the Protestant Reformation, something that we're coming on the 500-year anniversary of is Martin Luther came across this idea of justification by faith, of believing in Jesus. goes on to describe what it's like. It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Do you see the point that God was bringing Job to? He wanted to take him from this pious place where he said, I've been merciful, I've been this great person, and God, you shouldn't be punishing me like this, to the place where he finally said, God, I can't be my own Savior. I need Jesus. That's what justification by faith is all about. It's us realizing both the mercy and love of God and our utter depravity, our lack of any good, that there is none righteous, no, not one. goes on to say, the thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God, as a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented, for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. When you and I fully come to believe that Jesus has paid it all on the cross, that he went to the cross, that he took all of your sins, he took all of the punishment, he took all of the pain, all of the suffering, And he has borne it all for you. He's the only one to have passed into the experience of the second death, the emotional baggage that comes from all of the wages of sin, which is death. Only Jesus has borne that. When we really come to recognize that he took all of that for us and that he lived a righteous life for us, then we come to realize that we can only live a righteous life in his strength when we realize how big of an enemy we're facing, but how much bigger our Savior is, we can just cast ourselves at our, His feet in humble dependence. Like Don talk, talked about last week. For years and years, he said that he tried to put on a front. He tried to act like he was somebody that he wasn't. How many of us do that? How many of us come to church? How often have I done that? Trying to pretend like I have it all together. When what God is looking for is me to humble myself and say, you know what, God? I don't have what it takes. I need a Savior. Not just a Savior who who died for me 2,000 years ago, but a Savior now. 
Because the Leviathan's attacks are dangerous. They're deadly. It goes on in Revelation 13 to say that this dragon comes and he's so wroth with God's people that he stirs up all of these forces to attack us so that we get distracted from our Savior, from a loving relationship with Jesus. God is calling us to an experience of righteousness by faith, of justification by faith that will lead us to cling to Jesus as a Savior who is full and complete in our lives. What does that look like? Does this really break the power of Satan? That's what we just read in the book, The Faith I Live By, that, that when we come to believe this, that Satan's power will be broken. Does that happen in the story of Job? Look at Job chapter 42. Then Job, uh, verse 7. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite. Now this was the first one to speak to Job. This is the the leader of the three friends. My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You see, the three friends were so basing their ideas on tradition. They were so heinous in really what they were doing, they were coming and they were condemning Job. Job was just trying to figure things out. He was in the midst of his suffering. He was asking questions of God, and he said some things that were pretty harsh towards God, but it was in his ignorance. It was in his misunderstanding of what was happening. He was just trying to grapple with things, but these friends were condemning an innocent man. God has very little tolerance for us to be accusers of the brethren. God has very little tolerance when we tear each other down, when we criticize others. God has no tolerance for that. That is evident by what he does with the three friends. He says, look, you haven't dealt with me like Job has. You need a deeper repentance. You need to recognize that you've got to stop criticizing people like this. You don't even understand who I am and my love and mercy in Job's life. Verse 8, Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Go and have Job pray for you. Have Job be the one to intercede, to be the one who is your intercessor. Verse 9, So Eliphaz the Temanite and and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. I want you to picture this moment. When the three friends come to Job, has Job at this point been healed? Job still maybe has worms crawling on his flesh. He still has cracked skin. He still has boils. He still is in agony. And as the friends come to him, those miserable comforters, those ones who he, he, he wanted them to leave him alone, they come to him and ask him to pray for them. And Job has experienced such a deep repentance that he's able to pray a blessing on his worst of enemies. Who can hurt you more deeply than your close friends who accuse you and condemn you and criticize you and stab you in the back and turn on you just when you need them? These were what these three friends were like for Job. They were the worst of enemies to him. They were 
a friend who does that to you is worse than an enemy who simply attacks you. And yet Job has experienced such deep repentance, such a recognition of the love and mercy of God that he's able to pray for these three friends. And as he prays for these three friends, it is then that everything's restored for him and then that his captivity is turned, then that God turns everything around for him. And this isn't a promise of what always takes place when we forgive others. But this always should be the result of our recognition of the forgiveness of God. It leads us to have greater forgiveness and mercy for others. If I'm treating others unmercifully, it's likely because I don't recognize God's mercy in my life. If I'm criticizing others, if I'm condemning others, if I'm judging others, it's likely because I don't recognize how gracious God has been with me. But Job sees it. He recognizes that he needs a Savior. He sees that God is merciful and he's able to pray for his friends. And as he prays for his friends, it says that God gives him how much of what he had before? Twice as much. Double what he had before. So verse 11 continues. Then all his brothers and his sisters, they all come together. We'll skip verse 11. They come and they have a feast with him and it it's interesting. And then verse 12, it says, Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep. So how many sheep did he have before? 7,000. Okay. He had 6,000 camels. How many camels did he have before? A little bit of math. 3,000. Okay. 1,000 yoke of oxen. How many oxen did he have before? 1,000 female donkeys. 500 before. He also had seven sons. Okay, so he had three and a half sons before. And three daughters. So, okay, he had one and a half daughters before. What's wrong? You're questioning my math? What's going on here? Do you remember what the thing that Job feared most was? The thing that Job was continually offering sacrifices and prayers for? The thing that he continually went to that altar to plead God's mercy for his children. More than anything else, Job loved his children. He was worried about his children. And I know there are many in here that I've heard the cry of your hearts for your children. More than anything else, you want to see your children saved. That was what Job cared most about. And do you see what God did? In case you missed it, I'm going to read it once more. He also had seven sons and three daughters, which is twice as many. Can God not count? Or does God know something? Job actually now has 14 sons and six daughters. It may be that a tragedy came and took Job's sons and daughters, but God knew that at that moment was the right time to allow them to be taken. And God's giving him a picture. I've saved your kids. If you doubt this, look at Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 25. A beautiful promise, Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 25, where God promises that he'll do the same thing for you. He'll contend with the one who contends with you. He'll take on Leviathan for you, but not just for you. He'll take him on for your children. Isaiah 49 and verse 25 says this, But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away. Even those who in the depths of their being have the captivity of Satan in their lives. And the prey of the terrible will be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you. I'm going to fight Leviathan for you. But not only that, the next verse, what does he say? And I will save your children. 
God cares about what you care about. God cares about your kids. God knows what's best for your kids. And if a whirlwind comes and takes your kids today, you can trust that God may have allowed Satan to do something that looks so terrible, so awful, and yet in the midst of even that terrible thing, he is working all things together for good. That he does all things well. That you've surrendered your kids into his life, into his hands, and that he will work for their salvation. You can trust him as a mighty savior, your king and your God. And friends, this takes place when we learn to forgive and we learn that God is forgiving. Pastor Mark walked into Adele's house. It was this home where there was a picture on the wall. And as he saw that picture, his heart sunk because he knew that he was in Rwanda And he knew that he'd come to this house to learn the story of a man who was murdered. The man on the wall was an Adventist pastor. He and his wife were happily married when that evil genocide took place where one million of the Rwandan people were slayed by their neighbors. One million were killed. A hundred thousand Seventh-day Adventists were killed in that genocide. Well, that day when that was taking place, Adele and her husband had fled to the basement of the Catholic Church. They had thought that they would be safe there. They went there with about 60 others, and they were hiding out in the basement when suddenly the attackers burst into the church. They went into the basement, and they began with their machetes to hack at the people. Adele remembered that moment when the attacker came to her husband and hacked him with a machete, dead in a moment before her very eyes. And then the attacker turned on her and struck her across the back. And she showed Pastor Mark the scar that was on her back. He hacked at her her arm and and her hand had nearly fallen off. Her, Her wrist, Pastor Mark saw, was still dangling loosely. And then he went for her head and hit her straight across the head. She fell back. For the next three days, she lay there along with the other victims. Forty-five were killed that day. But Adele wasn't dead yet. And as she lay there, the people came back to collect the bodies once peace was somewhat restored. And as they were taking out the bodies, they felt her wrist and found that she actually had a pulse. They quickly took her to the hospital and it took three years for Adele to recover. But finally, when Adele had fully recovered, she was able to go home from the hospital. And she said, at that moment, I had the choice. I could become an angry, bitter woman Or I could forgive like Jesus had forgiven me. See, Satan's captivity in your life is broken when you recognize his forgiveness for you on the cross. And Adele recognized that and she said, I'm going to go to that prison and I'm going to minister to those men who killed my friends in that church. She went to the the local prison and she began to minister to all of these prisons. There were hundreds of thousands of people that were put into prison for their war crimes. And as she was there ministering to them, she would bring blankets to them when they were cold. She'd bring food to them when they were hungry. She became like a mom to that prison. But one day as she walked into the prison, this young man fell down before her and he was crying. His name was Lewis. And Lewis looked up at her and he said, do you recognize me? And as she looked down at him with shock in her mind, she recognized the face of the one that she could never forget his face. He was the one 
who had hacked her husband to pieces. He was the one who had attempted to kill her. But as she had been extending mercy and forgiveness, his heart was being changed. His captivity was being turned. And he said, will you ever forgive me? Is there any possible way that you could forgive me? She said, yeah, I could forgive you. And they began to study the Bible together. And she began to tell this man, Lewis, who didn't know about Jesus, didn't know about a merciful Savior, began to tell Lewis about the God that she served. And as time went on, he said he wanted to be baptized. And at his baptism, he confessed to everybody, I murdered this lady's husband, and I am the one that tried to kill her. And today, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. And he was baptized. A little bit later on, he received amnesty and was able to be released from prison. And as he was released from prison, he came into hard times because there was nowhere for him to go. He was going to be homeless. He was just going to be on the streets. So you know what Adele did? She adopted Lewis as her son. She took Lewis into her home. And as Pastor Mark heard this story, Lewis walked in from the other room, a changed man. Friends, there is power in the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. Power to break the captivity of Leviathan. We might think that we need to take him on with force. We might think that we've got to fight with everything that we have. But the real victory comes in absolute surrender. It comes in trusting the one who loves you more than his own existence. So friends, I want to challenge you. Not to let Leviathan have any hold in your heart. Not to allow pride to continue to lead you to try to be your own savior. To allow you to think that, yeah, I can go on in my sin and just live with my sin and it's going to be okay. But today, to say, Jesus, I'm broken. I am nothing. I am but dust. I need a savior. Because that is what Jesus is waiting for. He's longing for a people who are willing to let their glory be laid in the dust and to let him come and break the captivity of Leviathan. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we really do have nothing. The battle is too great for us. But thank you that you are a mighty Savior. You are our conquering King. You are the lame lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, and we can trust you. Oh God, we long to be led like Job, to be more merciful to be able to even pray for the worst of enemies, to be able to allow you to take care of any bitterness in our hearts. Father, just now I want to pray for anybody in this room who's struggling with bitterness towards somebody else. Father, I pray that you would reveal your forgiving love in their lives to such an extent that they can't help but allow you to love that person through them. Father, I want to pray for any person in here who hasn't accepted your forgiveness in their lives. Father, I pray that they wouldn't walk out of this room without accepting you as their personal Savior just now. And Lord, I want to pray for all of us who still have those little segments of our life that are held captive by Leviathan, by the dragon, by Satan. Lord, we want to ask you to be our complete and full Savior. Lord, we accept your forgiveness. We recognize that we can't do anything good on our own, so we cling to you as our Savior, our King, and our God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.